what do you desire most in this life? And I know that's a a serious question to start off with on a Sunday morning, but I want you to think honestly about that. What do you desire most? Uh, Could it be wealth, reputation, or love? Could it be power, uh, popularity, or respect? Could it be that life always stay the same, or maybe that life would change? What is it for you? One way to know the answer is to look at how you pray and what you pray for. Each of us was born desiring one thing above everything else. We don't need to be taught to desire it. It comes naturally. It's instinct. What is it? More than anything else, we desire to please ourselves. We desire to please ourselves. Our thoughts, emotions, and actions are all quite naturally stimulated by self-interest. The gospel is the only thing powerful enough to replace our self-interest with an obsession for God's will and pleasure. The gospel needs to change our hearts, change our desires, and then we are free to pray that which pleases God. God. My guess is that if each of us were to dissect our prayers, we would find that many of them are superficial, unemotional, selfish, and regrettably void of much consideration for God's will and pleasure. We need the gospel. We need the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. We need the gospel because apart from Christ, we don't care at all about what pleases God. We care about what pleases us. Only Jesus, only Jesus can give us a heart after God's own heart. The grace of our Lord must overflow for us in order for us to pray how we should pray. We may want comfort or success or security most in this life, but the gospel works in us to desire the gospel's advance and application for the glory of God more than comfort, success, or security, or whatever you can fill in the blank. God is an ever-rushing river who fills the reservoir of our hearts with gospel desires which constantly overflow into our prayers. A heart filled with God's word knows what to pray for and how to pray. This is what happened to Paul. The mercy and grace of God transformed him, which in turn transformed his prayers. God's sovereign mercy and grace transform us as well. Our prayers will then follow suit. Only a heart, please listen to this, only a heart transformed by God's grace will desire and pray for the advance and application of the gospel in all areas of life. That's important. Let me say it again. Only a heart transformed by God's grace will desire and pray for the advance and application of the gospel in all areas of life. Now, we should pray for many, many things. No doubt, plenty to pray for. Our marriages, children, physical, mental, and emotional health, healed relationships, finances, um, decisions, and, and many more things. But the gospel informs 
how we pray about those things. In praying for those things, the gospel makes our primary interest the advance and application of the gospel in all areas of life for the glory of God, including, and here is our main focus for today, the salvation of other people. The salvation of other people. 1 Timothy 2, 4, please pay attention to what this verse says. It says that God desires all people to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. It is the gospel which gives us a heart after God's heart which leads us to pray evangelistically. This brings me to my main point which will probably be the main point for the next three sermons. It's long, I know that. Uh, Sometimes short answers are, are easier but sometimes they just don't pack the punch that longer ones do. So, This is long, but we're going to work through it, and we'll be unpacking it for for a little bit here. Here's the point. The gospel creates urgency in the church to pray for the salvation and godliness of others so that God is glorified and pleased in the advance and application of the gospel in all of life. The gospel redirects our gaze from ourselves to God's mission in the world. Even prayers for ourselves become motivated by a desire to glorify and please God through the advance and application of the gospel. We will desire this together as God's people when God's grace transforms our hearts and implants into us a voracious appetite to see the gospel triumph everywhere, even in our enemies, our worst enemies' hearts. For God's glory alone. My main point, it begins with the gospel creates. The gospel creates. God must do something in us first. Or chapter 2 is going to fall on indifferent hearts. Hearts that don't give a rip about the lost. The gospel creates in us the heart to pray that which pleases God. Chapter 2 shouldn't be disconnected from chapter 1, obviously. It's a letter that Paul wrote. It's connected. In verse 1, Paul said, God our Savior and Christ Jesus our hope. He mentioned grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. God revealed to Paul that the law was laid down for unrighteous people of whom he was the foremost. God gave Paul mercy. God gave Paul grace. God sent Jesus to save sinners, including Paul. Through Christ, God transformed Paul from a blasphemer, a a persecutor of the church, uh, an insolent opponent, uh, an unbeliever, uh, a very angry man fighting against Christ into an apostle sent to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ to the nations. A radical transformation. God made Paul a new man with a new heart and new gospel desires. The gospel created inside of Paul a ravenous desire to advance the gospel and to work for its application among the nations of the world. And that's confirmed in chapter 2, verse 7. So Paul's prayers were driven by doxology. Doxology to the king of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Paul wanted everyone everywhere to give honor and glory to God. And that desire 
fueled his prayers. Fueled his prayers. Salvation is the context going into chapter 2. So understand that the gospel created in Paul the heart to see the king of the ages honored and glorified everywhere in everyone and everything. Knowing Paul's heart from chapter 1 will help you understand Paul's urge to pray for all people in chapter 2. Does your heart desire to see the lost saved? And as undeserving recipients of God's mercy and grace. We don't deserve it. If you're a Christian here this morning, you don't deserve God's grace. But he gave it to you. He lavished it upon you. You are an undeserving recipient of God's mercy and grace. And so therefore, you should never, ever be cold or indifferent towards the souls of those enslaved to sin who carry unbearable guilt all through life. They don't have hope apart from Christ. We must yearn for their salvation. We must have the heart of Jesus who in the last breaths of his life said, Father, forgive them. Forgive them for they know not what they do. They're ignorant. They don't know. Forgive them, God. That's the heart of Jesus. Calvin said of Christ in those last moments on the cross, quote, not only does he abstain from revenge, but pleads with God the Father for the salvation of those by whom he is most cruelly tormented, end of quote. The heart of Christ on display. Has the grace of God created in your heart a passion to see those far from God get close and get saved? I confess I confess, I lack compassion. I lack concern so much. I want more. I want more of the heart of Christ. Oh, that the gospel would move us to pray for the lost with tears. In addition, the gospel creates in us the urgency to pray that which pleases God. The urgency. Paul said in verse 1, First of all, then, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people. The the word then, right there at the beginning, connects Paul's urge to prayer back to chapter 1, verses 18 and 20, what we just did the last time. Uh, He had just mentioned waging the good warfare, holding faith in a good conscience, but also he mentioned Hymenaeus and Alexander, who had shipwrecked the faith. And we're handed over to Satan. In light of all of that, when Paul said, first of all, then, he was showing the primacy, the importance of evangelistic prayer in the church. He urged it. Now, what creates urgency in someone? Well, many years ago, I had to pick up the phone to give Christina a call to ask her out to get ice cream. That took urgency that, that, that's intimidating for a young man to do something like that, to call a beautiful woman on the phone. But I did it, and she didn't know it was a date, but it was. <laughs> and uh, we went and had ice cream at Katie's Corner in Grove City. I think we had a good time. Um, Christina, why was the urgency created in me? Because Christina was beautiful to me. I had known her for many years 
and I wanted a relationship with her. And it was my time. All the other guys, they had their opportunity. This was my time. And I was going for it, and I did. And my desire for her created urgency in me. In verse 2, Paul gave the purpose for the prayers. He said, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in any way. That created urgency. But why would that create urgency? A peaceful, quiet, godly and dignified life implies something bigger. A peaceful and quiet life means a life free from outside or inside oppression. Why would that kind of life be important? I think the paramount purpose and cause of urgency is Paul's doxology in chapter 1, verse 17. Urgency for evangelistic praying comes from a desire to see the king of the ages honored and glorified everywhere, in everything, and in everyone. In other words, we pray as Paul instructs in verse 1 so that we live a life where the gospel can advance and be applied in everything so God is glorified. Far from revolutionaries and insurrectionists, Christians strive for godliness and dignity in all areas of life. Of course we're not perfect. Of course we fall short of it. But we strive for godliness. We strive for dignity Why? Because our goal is to live out the Christian life so we pray evangelistically, trusting God to open the way for the gospel. Leonardo da Vinci said, quote, I have been impressed with the urgency of doing. Knowing is not enough. We must apply. Being willing is not enough. We must do. End of quote. Paul urged Because prayer is of first importance. Here's the second part, or the next part, rather. The gospel creates urgency in us to pray for the salvation and godliness of others. To pray for the salvation and godliness of others. Paul mentioned four similar prayers in verse 1. Supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings. Supplications are petitionary prayers. The root meaning of of that Greek word suggests the absence of something. So naturally, supplications plead for what isn't possessed. Prayers is the most general term, also can mean petitions, intercessions. That's like coming into the presence of a great and mighty king and requesting something on behalf of another, interceding for them. Thanksgivings, that's simply a, a worshipful expression of gratitude to God. Paul covered these various nuances of prayer to make one cumulative and urgent point. Pray. Pray. I don't think we should make too much of the differences between these terms. It's a a comprehensive view here. We must focus primarily on Paul's urgency to pray all types of prayers for all types of people. All types of prayers for all types of people, not just people inside the church. We don't just pray for Christians, though we should do that. We pray for non-Christians, sinners outside the church. We are sinners redeemed by grace. There are sinners not redeemed by grace. We must pray for them. Maybe the Ephesian church was so inward focused that they weren't even directing their gaze outside of themselves to pray for unbelievers. Maybe that was part of the issue of why Paul wrote this. Paul said in verse 1 that these prayers should be made for all 
people. Now at this point, uh, in interest of future weeks as well, I'm going to slow down a little bit. This is an important point to understand, and it's going to help shape our interpretation of the coming context after. So I'm going to try to make this clear, and then in, in the coming weeks try to make it even more clear. What does Paul mean by all people? Okay, I heard a pastor ask his class, what does all mean? To which he retorted, all means all. Well, that's not very helpful. Uh, I, I didn't think that was helpful at all. In fact, I think that's actually misleading. Uh, because like many words, and we know this in the English language, all uh, can mean different things in different contexts. So here's what I mean. If I said to you, all people will answer to God. I think you'd know what I mean. You'd understand me to mean every man, woman, and child throughout history or what we'll call the universal all. All people that ever existed will answer to God. But if I said all people are required to take our membership class, you'd understand that as anyone wanting to become a member of our church must take the membership class. The universal all would not make sense in that, in that second statement, a different meaning. Paul used the phrase all people in other places. In Romans 12, 17, and 18, Paul said, Give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all people. Then he added, So far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all people. Well, the universal all doesn't work in that context either. Here's another example. 2 Corinthians 3, 2, Paul said, You yourselves are our letter of recommendation written on our hearts to be known and read by all people. The universal all doesn't work there either. Are you following me? So when interpreting the phrase all people, we must rely heavily on the context of how that is used. So let's look, look carefully here at how Paul used all people in 1 Timothy 2. Was Paul telling Timothy to pray for all people in the universal sense? Well, if you think about it, that would include praying for dead people. I don't think that's what Paul had in mind. Narrow that a bit. Was Paul telling Timothy to pray for all people on earth at that particular time in history? Well, that also seems unlikely. How would a church go about praying individually for every single person on planet earth? I, that, that, that's unreasonable. The more likely meaning is that Paul meant all kinds or types of people. As one commentator put it, all needy sinners without distinction of race, nationality, or social position. Now look at verse 2. After saying for all people, Paul specified for kings and all who are in high positions. That suggests Paul meant pray for all kinds of people. Different groups of people, like kings and those in high positions. In other words, don't just pray for those inside the church. Pray for unbelievers outside the church, even elitist kings and high-ranking officials. Again, that kind of praying won't happen unless the gospel changes your heart and gives you new gospel desires to see people saved. Because included in all people are terrible people. Terrible people. Get the force of what Paul is saying here historically. Nero was likely in power when Paul wrote this. Nero, duplicitous, murderous, 
treacherous, ferocious Nero, the Nero who hated Christians, who burned many of them alive, the Nero who had his mother stabbed to death, the Nero who had his wife beheaded, then displayed her head for his mistress, whom he kicked to death years later. She was pregnant at the time. Paul urged Timothy and the church of Ephesus to supplicate, to pray, to intercede, to thank God on behalf of people like Nero. Can you imagine how sobering Paul's words were for Timothy and the church of Ephesus? Imagine if God wanted you to pray for radical Islamists who get pleasure beheading Christians. That is what God wants you to do. The words of Jesus came to mind here. But I say to you who hear, love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who abuse you 1 Timothy 2, 1 and 2 will simply never happen for you and me unless the gospel changes our hearts. We don't have the heart to pray for those kind of people. The gospel has to do something incredible, something supernatural inside of you to implant a love for those people, a love for the glory of God so much that you want to see everybody saved, to know Christ so that he is glorified. It's impossible to pray like this without Christ working in us. Now, where am I getting the idea that the prayers should be for the salvation of all people? Verse one is connected back to the preceding context where Paul was talking about salvation and where Hymenaeus and Alexander shipwrecked the faith and where Paul turned them over to Satan and he turned them over to Satan in order that they would hopefully repent and be truly saved. So the prayers for all people include the Hymenaeuses and Alexanders of the world. But verses 3 and 4 also give us context. Praying for non-Christians is pleasing to God who is our what? Savior. Savior. Why is God pleased by our praying for all people? Verse 4, God desires all people to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. Now, why would, would Paul add that little statement about God's desire for all people to come to a knowledge of the truth and be saved? Why would he add that? Because God is pleased when our heart is like his heart and we pray for the salvation of all types of people, even our worst enemies. Here, here's why we need the gospel. We don't naturally love people. We don't naturally want people to experience joy in God. We want to stick it to people. We we don't have the heart of God in this area. The gospel, what that does is it reminds us of our incredible sin, that we are horrible people. It reminds us of our sin, our guilt, and our misery, and then how great Christ is to redeem horrible people just like us and how God, by his spirit, reforms our heart, changes our heart so that we supernaturally, by the leading of the spirit, desire to see people saved and then we plead for the grace of God to come for them. 
Listen to what Charles Spurgeon said about this. I'm, I want a statement like this to be so deeply rooted inside of me. So his words are just so good. The Prince of Preachers. Here's what he said. If sinners will be damned, at least let them leap to hell over our bodies. And if they will perish, let them perish with our arms around their knees, imploring them to stay. If hell must be filled, at least let it be filled in the teeth of our exertions and let not one go there unwarned and unprayed for. You know people who are not saved. No doubt there are people here today that aren't saved. They are on their way to eternal hell and they don't know. By God's grace, if they are resolved to leap into hell with unbelieving hearts, let them leap hearing your voice and leap hearing my voice, warning them and praying diligently that God's grace would come and save them. Let them hear that from the church. Maybe we should put down the picket signs for once and pray for lost souls to be saved. The corruptions in Washington, D.C. are immeasurable. Who is praying for those leaders? Planned Parenthood rejoices in wickedness and evil. Who is praying for Cecil Richards? North Korea is the worst place on planet Earth for Christians. Who is praying for Kim Jong-un? What's natural for us is to hate those people, but the gospel creates in us urgent love to pray for their salvation and godliness. Didn't God rescue you and me from the same things that enslaved them? And you know... None of this will move you to any action. You just, you, you, not, you won't care about anything that I'm saying until the gospel does a work in your heart and in mine. Then we'll care a whole lot about what this is saying. One more thing under this point. Why am I saying salvation and godliness? Why godliness? Well, one, salvation and godliness are inseparable. But two, look at verse two again. Paul said that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in any way. Who was Paul referring to? Certainly he was referring to himself and to Timothy and he was referring to the church at Ephesus. But was Paul also including those whom they were to pray for evangelistically? That's, that's actually a possibility. The prayers were in hopes of conversions leading people to godliness and dignity. One commentator I read said this, the plural also probably reaches out to include all kinds of men and women for whom the church is praying and for whom they desire, as God as does God, salvation and godly living. The gospel is the only road that leads to a peaceful and quiet life which is godly and dignified in every way. And if we are to live that kind of life, we must pray for the gospel's impact and effect in the world. Let me jump to verse 3 and make this point. The gospel creates urgency in us to pray for the salvation and godliness of others so that God is glorified and pleased. 
Verse 3 says, This is good, and it is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior. Supplicating, prayer, interceding, thanksgiving, um, thanking God for all people is good. It's good. And whatever is good glorifies and pleases God. Our God loves to save people. Loves to save people. And it is good when he does save people. So let us pray for what God thinks is good, for that pleases God. It is not good, nor does it please God, for our prayers to be monopolized by our callous self-interest. We must pray deeper than our own interest. The substance of our prayers must be what most pleases God. My guess is that all of us have selfish prayers at least some of the time, maybe a lot of the time. We're, we're more concerned with our tummy ache or scholarship or career advancement than we are people getting destroyed by their sin. We need a heart after God's heart to pray what is good and pleasing in the sight of our good Father. Jesus can give us this heart. And we can pray how he prays. Jesus prayed for himself, but to what end? Did he pray for himself the glory of God? My last point is important, and I need to jump back to verse 2. The gospel creates urgency in us to pray for the salvation and godliness of others so that God is glorified and pleased in the advance and application of the gospel in all of life. The advance and application of the gospel in all of life. Why am I using the words advance and application of the gospel? Here's, here's where I'm getting that. The Bible sense lexicon defines peaceful in our text, from verse 2, as untroubled by interference or disturbance. Uh, David Simpson and Charles Ellicott defined it as, quote, untroubled from without, end of quote. The, the church grows amidst persecution, no doubt, but persecution is still evil and persecution is still undesirable. I, I am not aware of any scripture that even hints that we should desire and pray for the persecution of the church. But Scripture does suggest we should desire justice and righteousness and goodness to triumph. So let us pray unto that end. North Korea, Korea is ranked as number one as the, as the most oppressive place in the world for Christians. Less than 1.2, I think around 300,000 people of North Korea are Christians. It is said that gathering for praise or fellowship is practically impossible in that country. Imagine if North Korea's leaders at least opened the door for missionaries to come in and to plant gospel-centered churches all across the country. The gospel would advance in North Korea. It would change people's lives, perhaps at a rapid pace. A quiet life is similar to a peaceful life. Chaos and disorder, they threaten gospel ministry and life, but a peaceable, well-ordered life can display the glory of the Christian life, the glories of living for Jesus by his strength. As Paul said, this kind of praying is in order that many lead a peaceful and quiet life. What about application? I'm getting that from verse 2, godly and dignified in every way. That's the application of the gospel in all of life. Godliness is a, is a big theme in 1 Timothy. We must pray for all people so that the gospel can be applied in all areas of life for God's glory and that God's glory can be seen in the Christian life, in a life worth emulating. When Paul said in every way, he was talking about the full expression of this 
of godliness and dignity. So all of life is in view. We can't segment our life to say this part is going to be for Jesus, but this part's for me. Godliness and dignity are far from some religious coup or violent takeover. What in the world? Even far from political cynicism or restlessness. And as I thought about this, I'm convicted about how I handled the, la- the last election. What in the world? Why? Jonathan, stop running your mouth and complaining. All right? Just shut up. Nobody wants to hear your political opinions. Pray. Paul was urging prayer for a very different purpose than insurrection. I think Jeremiah 29, verse 7 is appropriate to mention. Jeremiah said, but seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf for in its welfare you will find your welfare. If we want the gospel to transform Mannheim and Lidditz and Lancaster County, then we should seek the welfare of Mannheim and Lidditz and Lancaster County. And we must pray to the Lord on their behalf. Prayer may open the doors in prominent positions of power, in schools, in councils, in boardrooms. As Christians, we want the gospel to advance. As Christians, we want to see the gospel applied in all of life. Not just for this reason, but it works. God intended life to be lived this way. So we must pray for that. We must pray for all people. When it comes down to it, brothers and sisters, what it comes down to is this. Our desire to see Christ reign supreme over everything so that his beauty and supremacy are seen and experienced and God is glorified. That desire drives us to our knees to plead with God to accomplish his will on earth as it is in heaven. So why should we pray for all people? Think of it like this. One of the most significant pleasures of my life is watching my children Uh, being involved in their lives. I can't even put into words how deep my love for them is. And I've explained for them uh, before that I love them, Uh, not because of what they do, but because God gave them to me as a gift. But that's not to say that I don't love what they do. See, I've watched them do wonderful things generous things, uh, Christ-centered things, good things, and it pleases my heart. And as their father, it pleases my heart a lot. So just hear this. God loves you deeply and not because of what you have done for him. In fact, apart from Christ, all you have done is opposed God. Okay? But God loves you because of what Jesus Christ has done for you. He loves you because Christ redeemed you and you are united to him. But now that you're united united to Christ, this this is exciting business. You absolutely please God. You please God. You can do things by his spirit that are truly good and that really please the heart of your father. It's true. God sees good things, the good things that you do by his spirit in his son, and he is pleased with you. Verses 1 through 3 were written to explain for Timothy how a Christian ought to behave inside the church. Evangelistic prayer is an ought for the church. We ought to do it. Why? Because it is good and because it pleases our loving Father. That is the desire that the gospel must place in you. Don't you want to please your Father? 
Aren't you overjoyed that he has appointed you to serve him? Doesn't that just get you excited? So make it the sole aim of your life to do what is good, to do what is pleasing in the sight of God. That should be your desire most. Not wealth, not possessions, not power, not popularity, not anything, but to do what is good and pleasing in the sight of God. If that is your greatest desire, my friends, then your heart is after God's heart, and you will pray that which pleases God. Father in heaven, thank you for your clear word, and I pray that it lands beautifully upon the heart of your people. I pray that if, for the people here uh, today that don't know Christ, I pray that they will see his beauty and supremacy, that they would be so compelled by the person and work of Jesus Christ that they would prostrate themselves before him in worship and adoration, giving all for him, asking him to radically change and transform them so that the gospel can advance and be applied in their life and their sphere of influence. God, make Jerusalem church a church with a heart for lost people. Implant in us the desires to see people saved. And then, God, may we be faithful to pray for them, but not only to pray for them, to open up our mouths to share about the beautiful life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, which is the hope for the nations. May it be done, all for your sake. Amen.